0: phones and artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, it's in the news over and over and over again. You can't go wrong if you study one of these areas and you're tenacious about it and you just keep studying until you get there because it's hard.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Beautiful Grind podcast. You just heard Thompson Comer. Uh, Thompson is a senior software engineer at NVIDIA. And if you don't know what NVIDIA is, it is an amazing uh, computer science company which really is doing some awesome innovative work on computer hardware as well as some AI with deep learning and we dive into that a little bit on the podcast but Kind of some of the topics that we went over in today's podcast was first talking about the relevant skills and what kind of mindsets needed to work in tech, Uh, some machine learning and AI, uh, the innovation that NVIDIA is doing, as well as how they're using their technology beyond the gaming industry, and we really dive into this concept uh, where we kind of discuss the death of Moore's Law, and from there we move on to the newer more kind of on the edge technologies blockchain and ai as well and finishing off with thompson's uh, genuine advice on how to be successful in the tech industry anyways hope you guys enjoy this one i am super excited for you to listen to this let me know your thoughts please share and let's get right to it cool
0: there's a huge gradient of skill sets that are required for us to build all these complicated machines software machines and mechanical machines and we need people people and we need not people people machine people
1: (laughs) well what is the role like how are these roles kind of created then for the people people and the not people people and like how does that interaction work or operate on like a team
0: yeah so my favorite example of it is Uh, my undergraduate degree was actually in communications. I didn't get an engineering degree at all, Uh, but I was already kind of a computer geek and dumb for a smart guy just like you guys. Um, So I studied this specialty of communications that my, my college called information specialist. And I was supposed to be trained on IT, computers, software, programming, And then I was also trained in business organization and communication theory and organizational theory and like conflict resolution because there's a really important spot for people who know the technology and are passionate about the technology, but who actually specialize in human communication because the hardest part of all of this stuff turns out to be getting teams to collaborate, um, you know, building Gmail or building Google or building Hadoop or any of these super powerful software systems that are currently in use can't be done by one person or even a small group of really talented people. It takes tons of people working on it. so there's this spectrum where you've got what I call the uh, the principal investigator or the the person with the money on one side of the spectrum. And they've got a cool idea, they've got a passion, and they've got enough money and enough faith in this idea that they're ready to pay engineers to do it. And so they're on the opposite end of the spectrum. And your canonical engineer, your like alpha engineer thinks in spreadsheets and graphs and functions and derivatives And when someone comes to them and says, I want to build this machine, that person immediately starts doing calculus, trying to figure out, okay, we'll build this and we'll build this and we'll build this. They're not concerned. The engineer generally is not concerned with whether it's a good product idea or whether it will be attractive to users or if you made the button green versus yellow, whether that would be more appealing. Okay, so now there are middlemen all along the spectrum. I mean, middleman's kind of a bad word and it's not fair to say that because everybody's a middleman along this with different skill sets. Somewhere along the spectrum is somebody with a passion for helping the person with the cash communicate a goal that the person with the engineering skills not only can produce, but will be happy with. The person with the money will be happy with when it's finished. And it's, it's a tremendous effort. It's like the biggest part of our industrial machine today in the United States. It's like, what do people do in the United States? We make movies and television, and we make computer software, uh, and we, we sell food products. And those are like the main businesses that exist now that I'm aware of anyway.
2: So like this middleman is able to kind of speak both languages, understand the consumer, but at the same time understand how the tech works and then how to configure it to best fit the consumer?
0: Yep. And I think the most opportunity is for this kind of middleman today. There's a whole lot of people who can get jobs in software if they learn to speak the language properly and don't necessarily have to go do, you know, 12 years of college to get there. Exactly. And I mean,
1: kind of looking back on all your experience, because I mean, preparing for the podcast, looking at your previous experience and what you've done, you got a whole heck of a lot of experience at different companies and different roles. How has this skill served you when you've worked in the
0: team setting? It's been invaluable. It has given me, I want to say, the tact in professional meetings to befriend my fellow engineers. Because I'm a programmer, I want to be working on the software. I don't want to do management particularly, and I don't want to be a businessman particularly. But I like straddling the two. Uh, So, using this kind of tact in a meeting allows me to give the person with the money confidence that we can do it because they can see that I'm listening to them and that I'm interested in exactly what they want to achieve, not just make a cool machine, which is what a lot of engineers want to do. Um, But I also. Have enough geek cred and enough of a background on enough different projects and with enough education and training that I get along really well with the engineers as well. I use Vim for all of my programming. I'm command line only. it's all Linux, right? I mean I've, I've got all kinds of geek technique that's developed over the years so that um, well, you know <laughs> i i I guess I say this with a grain of salt. I can befriend enough people in the team to help the product succeed. And that's the thing I wanna do. I just wanna help the product succeed. It's
1: interesting though that you say you have enough education and you have enough kind of little tricks that you do uh, to kind of fit in with both sides.
0: Yeah, and that a lot of that comes from experience. Uh, it's something that's hard to obtain Um, And I, you know, I I taught at Lambda School and I taught students many times that the most important thing, the most important skill that you can have trying to be successful in software is tenacity and the willingness to keep trying because the space is so humongous. You know, I say that, oh, I like to use my Vim. I like to use my command line. But if, if you dropped me in a particular business environment, those would be totally the wrong skills. So I I have to say ta- I have to say that that should be with a grain of salt exactly because different
1: companies will want different skills and different uh programs or software things to be used uh for their product's development
0: and there are absolutely communities where I would fail where you could set me down in an enterprise development environment building windows networking software or windows medical um what is a HIPAA type software keeping track of people's medical databases, and I would know next to nothing about the tool sets required for that.
2: One of the things that I've really struggled with, and I know a lot of students at our high school have struggled with, is figuring out which geek cred, as you called it, to build up because they don't know necessarily what they want to do, and they're scared because if you go too far down one path. You know, your, cred, your credit yeah, yeah. worthless in other industries. So how do you decide, like, where do you want to build yourself?
0: It's a great question, and it's very complicated, and I don't have a trivial answer for you, except that uh, it does come back to tenacity, and that if you double down on anything in software, in the professional industry that computers are based in, you'll be rewarded for it. It's really, really unlikely that you will make such a bad choice that um, the software or the tool set that you're studying will not have jobs by the time you figure out how to do it. It's really unlikely. Um, now, I, I tend to think on my feet. and right? I haven't premeditated any of these answers, and so I want to I amend that statement a little bit and say that it's, it's a good idea to buy into what's hot right now. It's gonna be hot for a while. Um, I became a mobile developer in about 2008. I wrote my first iPhone app. I got an iPhone 3GS. I thought it was just amazing that I could have such a powerful computer in my pocket. And so I started writing apps. I was, I was kind of a machine learning developer at the time, fresh out of graduate school. And so I I made iPhone apps in my spare time and ended up forging a pretty huge career out of that because it was so popular. Um, So everybody can see what the popular technology is today. Uh, Phones are dwindling a little bit, but phones and artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, it's in the news over and over and over again. You can't go wrong if you study one of these areas and you're tenacious about it. And you just keep studying until you get there because it's hard. Uh, In fact, I'm I'm just going to pause and throw this out there because I was talking to another friend about a similar subject the other day. And he was really taken aback when I said that in software engineering as a profession, you never get the skills that you need to do the job. You don't. Like get the, get the textbook, okay, I've got the book on how to do this. I read it from page one to page N and now I'm done. I've learned what I need to know. That's a, that's a, a complete falsity, never happens. Everyone working in this industry is always learning. <laughs> well, and you know, again, like maybe that's an exaggeration and I'm sure there's a few people sitting on their heels, know just enough to do what they need to do but the reality of it is you don't obtain mastery. No one does. Uh, You continue to learn, you continue to grow. And that's the most important personality tendency that you need to have is the willingness to learn and the willingness to change because it just keeps on happening. Software is growing so quickly. Anyway, I can go on about that at great length.
1: People listening to this might be thinking a few things from, holy crap,
0: I'm not ready for that, or oh my gosh, I'm so glad I don't need to know everything. (laughs) You never do. Uh, I don't know everything. I, I know enough to learn. And those of you who are brand new to it, that's why there's no cost to learning one thing really good. For example, I bought my son a book at Sam's Club yesterday learn to 20 ways to learn coding or something. And it wasn't my favorite book and it didn't have all the right lessons in it. Um, but I gave it to my son and I said, you know, look, if you do 15 of these 20 lessons, you will have tremendous skills, pick any 15 lessons and do them and you will have opened the door to learn enough to really break into the industry. That's my theory anyway. Mastery
2: really isn't attainable. I mean, I remember in Taekwondo, they had the title of master, but there was no set rank that gave you mastery. It was completely dependent on the studios, just a title, and it didn't mean anything. And that yeah, was right. interesting to me because like, it was basically saying, there's not really a master, but you know, the kids should probably call someone master. But in reality, nobody's a master. It's just about continuing to learn and bringing other people with you.
0: No doubt. Well, isn't it in uh, martial arts basically that a black belt means that you are now a beginner?
2: Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it means. It's exactly what it means. It's always so funny. People get to black belt, they're
0: like, oh my gosh, I can fight now. <laughs> right. It's, it's just. Yeah, uh, you know, I can't say it enough times or in enough ways that working in the software industry is about curiosity. And it's not about learning a vocational skill. It's not about uh, picking up a set of talents that make you employable. It's about uninterrupted curiosity and openness to learning new things. And here's the hardest part, willingness to be wrong and willingness to not know. Uh, because I know, for example, right? I have a master's in computer science. I've got ten years as a consultant. I'm a senior engineer at NVIDIA now, and the the size of all the stuff in software that I don't know is fifty thousand times bigger than the stuff that I do know.
1: Man, that's always an interesting thought to consider because one there's just you want to learn more and you want to do more but at the same time you have the skills that you need to build pretty much anything that you would need to build because there's so many ways to do the same thing
0: yeah there's an infinite number of ways literally an infinite number of ways to write every single computer program Um, and you can do it Like me, I've got a MacBook Pro and an external monitor, or you can have a Windows machine, or you can do it with Unity. I mean, you know, you could build professional database software using Unity, the gaming engine, if you wanted to. Um, And I could do that, right? I have enough experience now that I could sit down and plot a course to write a professional database application that runs in Quake. But it would still take me 5,000 hours to do it. I remember uh,
2: I watched the NVIDIA, when they, uh, when they announced their GPUs, their new uh, 2000 series, and I was really interested when they talked about that they wanted their, their computers to be for, or their software, their technology, to be for gamers, not for games. They wanted it to branch across all kinds of different things to be applicable in uh, 3d modeling and in video editing and that sounds a lot like what you're talking about it seems to me that the the line between a mobile workstation a normal laptop gaming laptops is starting to blur to me as in it, it, because they can do it all now and i just think that's really interesting and i didn't know if you had any thoughts on that
0: well i think that's a good comment as well especially in the context of what we're trying to do at nvidia there's a good chance that what you just said is true. Like 10 years from now, every computer will have a Titan X inside of it or you know, the, a less expensive edition of the Titan X GPU. Um, Nvidia has been pushing GPUs in terms of performance and in terms of adoption for 30 years now and trying to get everybody to buy GPUs and everybody to have them in their systems and everybody does now right you've got a t- even if you have the lowest end chromebook you've got a tiny little intel graphics processor inside or a tiny little samsung graphics processor inside um but with the development of machine learning as an important technology area everybody's going to need to have a GPU so that they can run their own neural nets on their computer. We're not quite there yet. We haven't figured out how to commoditize machine learning algorithms so that everybody has a use for one, but that's a long-term goal, not just for NVIDIA. That's a long-term goal for NVIDIA. It's a long-term goal for Google and Facebook. Uh, You know, there's this big technological push right now for developing machine learning and GPUs are the foundation of that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Moore's Law is over. Um, <laughs> and our CPUs are not really getting any faster. They're getting a little faster and they're getting more power efficient. But it's all about parallelization now. That's the only place that we can get performance gains. And that's what NVIDIA is number one in the world at. That's really interesting that you talk about that. Um,
1: I know that AWS is doing a lot of things with machine learning in particular, but they're making it more cloud-based, which is an interesting approach as well because it's providing the resources, but it's providing the resources on a need basis, Um, whereas NVIDIA is doing really interesting stuff in applying machine learning paired with their GPUs, which I think, Jackson, isn't that something that they kind of recently put out? With uh, their deep
2: learning and their GPUs. Yeah, yeah. With the uh, it's what I from what I understood, uh, the it would take a 1080 image and then turn it to 4K because the the AI the deep learning guy knows that the image should look better than it is, and it can. And I I'm, I'm a little curious about how that's working or how that even happened. That's just that's such a foreign concept to me that I don't even know where to start to ask my question.
0: Well, it's all about training data. That's what everything in machine learning today is about, more or less, is training data. And it's the reason that it's become successful. This whole kind of field of machine learning has gotten a lot of buzz because so many people are connected and there's so much data transferring from machine to machine that, for example, NVIDIA can create a model that improves the resolution of a game screen. The reason, the way that they do that essentially, is they make a recording of a game at 1080p, and they make a recording of that same game in those exact same views at 4k, and then they train a network so that uh, essentially they input the 1080p images into the network, and then they match the 1080 the 1080p inputs to the 4k outputs. And what you end up with is a whole bunch of weights and a whole bunch of biases inside of this network that say, when I see a 1080p image with this particular shape, it should actually look like a 4K image that uh, has the same shape, just lots more data in it. And so neural networks are amazing in this way. You train them on enough inputs and they begin to understand, for example, how neighborhoods of pixels are gonna look prettier. They begin to understand that a four by four grid of pixels can be blown up to a 16 by 16 pixel grid using these special rules. Uh, And now you put in a new frame, you put in an image that's never been seen before into the network, and you can instantly blow it up to a higher quality version. And the the trained system, the network that you've trained to do that is, just a single recording. It's a single snapshot. It's been trained over thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of images. But when you're finished, it's just a a set of numbers and you take a new image, you run it through the set of numbers for arithmetic and you get a nice big 4k attractive image on the other side. Uh, Now NVIDIA wants to be involved in even more than gaming now in machine learning because GPUs are actually the most powerful piece of hardware to do machine learning that exists today. Um, So NVIDIA is expanding out even outside of gaming and is trying to make GPUs available for anybody who wants to do machine learning, like Facebook, like Google, and they wanna do it frequently in the same way that Amazon Web Services does it, by putting it on the cloud. And so, and you can do that now. NVIDIA has a service available. You can sign in, register, and then you can gain access to Titan Xs or um, the V100, the most powerful GPUs that we're currently producing, you can just kind of sign in and put some data inside of them and you pay hourly for it. Hourly
1: pay. I was wondering about the payment of that. Because <laughs> you, get, you get a high quality product like that, of course there's gonna be a
0: cost associated with that. Well, that's right. And you can buy one and put it in your server farm. Uh, NVIDIA sells these incredible mainframes now. There's the highest end one is called the DGX2. Uh, and you can buy one for cash. It's only 400 grand. And um, it's, a, it's like a 8U mainframe server rack, meaning it's really, really tall. And it has 16 Tesla V100s in it, each with 64 gigs of RAM, I think, 64 gigs of ultra fast uh, Tesla RAM. And so it's got 500 gigabytes of gpu memory and it's got one and a half terabytes of system memory and i I think it's got like one and a half terabytes of hard drive too it's like got a little ssd plot with the same space as the memory that goes inside i'm sure you could get more than that Uh, and so then you if you want to purchase one of these you have unlimited time on what's literally the most powerful piece of computing hardware that's ever been packed into a space that size before Uh, or you could just lease one (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is really amazing because then you're bringing that high quality and that the ability to do so much with this hardware to anyone an hourly rate. Which you know, to my mind, any business is going to say, "Wow, that's worth it," unless they're going to be using it extensively and nonstop. Um, even then, depending on the rate, it could still be way worth it. And I think that's pretty cool. Totally. Technology has this trend of you know, making it easier for people with less resources to do uh, things with these super powerful and amazing pieces of hardware.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Amazon did something really amazing. Amazon Web Services took the entirety of the computer hardware business and put it on the web. And so like, you know, you can host a website without needing to know a single thing about building an actual physical computer. And we're going to continue in that direction to where, um, well, I, I don't know if you guys know the computer science history, but back in the 70s, Nobody had their own computers, right? The mini computer, the micro computer had not been invented yet. All the computers were mainframes that were the size of warehouses. And so if you wanted to connect to one of these computers in the 60s and 70s, you got a little dumb terminal it was called. It was basically just a monitor, a keyboard, and a network card. And it would send your data back and forth between the mainframe and you. So we had this period in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. Where microcomputers dominated. You can buy your own cool computer, set it on your desk, and do as much as a mainframe of a few years ago could do. Now that Moore's Law has died off, those computers are being stuffed back into mainframes, stuffed back into data centers. And 10 years from now, everybody's going to have a Chromebook, and your GPU, for example, won't even be inside of your own machine. Your GPU will be running virtually at NVIDIA's server farm, which is a technology that already. Actually already exists. Have you guys heard of NVIDIA's GeForce Now platform?
2: Isn't isn't is that for uh, for the gaming purposes so you can game on an older laptop? I know those exist, but I don't
0: know. yeah Yeah, that's right. So this is a cool product and it's funny that it uh, I, It's not funny that it in, exists. It's funny that nobody thought of it until Well, NVIDIA did which also isn't funny. Of course NVIDIA thought of it um, <laughs> The idea is you don't need to have a really powerful video card in your computer because a video game is basically just a movie, right? It's a movie that you control. And so what they realized they could do is as long as you've got fast enough internet, they can take your control inputs from your controller in your house, stream them all the way to a massive NVIDIA server farm, run an instance of the game for you on a machine somewhere and then put those inputs in and send the video back to you. So all you're getting is a video stream and you're able to play games with the literal most powerful graphics hardware that exists as long as you have a fast internet connection. And I think GeForce now is completely free right now and there's dozens of games you can just play. You can run them on a Titan X and see the results using this mainframe graphics technology.
1: I'll have to figure out how to uh, set it up so my PS4 can use that. (laughs) (laughs) Thompson, you had this history of working on like these technologies that are really on the edge. First, you talked about mobile app development. Uh, Now you're talking about AI, specifically machine learning and deep learning. And I mean, I'm curious, have you worked with IOT or worked with any blockchain before?
0: Yeah, I've worked with IoT quite a bit. Um, That was something that I did as a consultant for Cardinal Peak. And I've spent a lot of time talking about blockchain. Uh, I haven't written much actual blockchain code. Uh, I've had a couple of potential clients pass within my radius, and I've said something along the lines of, I could write you your own Litecoin if you wanted to pay me to do that. And it wouldn't take very long, but uh, I haven't had the opportunity yet. Um, I love crypto, though, and I've given a number of talks on it. So proof of work is the idea that validating the blockchain, the thing that guarantees that the chain is true, is a perpetual arms race. And that's why it uses up so much resources. Every machine that's connected to the blockchain uh, and wants to mine Is committed to perpetually validating and revalidating all the work that's been done before, and that's essentially what its role on the network is: is to suck as much electricity as it can, and the one that validates the chain, the one that says, "Yep, um, all the coins that have been transmitted through all of history are correct." The one that does that the hardest gets the most money. That's the one that mines the most coins, Uh, and so that's been the 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 motivation for people to to do Bitcoin mining is that if you buy lots of powerful, expensive hardware and you outmine the others, then you make a big profit and all you're doing is contributing to the the community collective agreement that all the coins are valid. I don't know how to invent a proof of stake method that says, uh, I'm going to validate what exists because If I deviate from the existing course, I will lose my stake. See, that's how proof of stake uh, resolves in my mind. I don't know how to build that. That's like another Bitcoin that needs to be invented. And uh, there's a lot of great minds working in in the blockchain space now. I think that somebody will discover a less resource hungry take on the blockchain. But it's it's kind of like any other scientific study, you know. Uh, the invention of Bitcoin opened up a door. It was like somebody discovering the existence of the electron or someone proving the existence of atomic structure or of some chemical bonds. Okay, and then 50 years of chemistry later... You can create new polymers that that never existed before, or you know, you can design metals that can withstand uh, never before known heat or pressure, or stress or whatnot. But the scientific process is so many, so many revolutions, so many minor steps from people who dedicate their whole lives to understanding it that we might see this kind of slower progression in blockchain as well. It's not going anywhere. And I I give it about a 99.999% chance that 25 years from now, all financial transactions will be taking place on a blockchain or the blockchain. But the exact technicality of it is going to be up to the people who are trying to hit a home run, you know, and none of us know until we see it, until it's been invented. Exactly, and I think to
1: kind of finalize the podcast, you know, people listening might have been thinking, holy crap, I don't understand everything that I just heard, but I think it's amazing,
0: and I want to know more about NVIDIA, I want to know more about Thompson. Well, I hate to say it because it is uh, triviality, because it's the same thing that everybody else says. But it's work hard. You know, you have to commit to your goal. And everybody who's successful says, I didn't get successful because I got lucky, generally. They say, not that I'm particularly successful, but I'm very thankful for the path that my career has taken. Um, I got this career because I went to graduate school in computer science. And I did that because I looked at my opportunities that were in front of me, having had a batch. I mean, I had a bachelor's degree. I got a bachelor's degree in communications and I could see professionally that almost every door was closed and that it was going to be hard to, um, feel really accomplished with the choices that I made, sticking with that particular path. Um, but I didn't even have a degree in computer science. And so I, I got a textbook on discrete math. And when I got home from work every day, I was about 23 or 22. And when I got home from work every day, instead of drinking beer or watching TV or playing video games, I got this textbook out and I did exercises from it for the first 12 chapters about I did every single exercise until I was accepted into the computer science program at Colorado State University, at which point I had plenty of other homework to do. Okay, so then the, the, the extenuation of that is that then I did go to graduate school. And I was I was going to get a PhD. I eventually decided that it wasn't in my best interest to do so. I did four years of PhD research. And the punchline is that I worked 10 or 12 hours a day on it six days a week, sometimes seven days a week for four years. And that is where I got the knowledge and the practice and the skills and even, dare I say it, the confidence to believe that I could do it. Uh, and I didn't get that from reading one book or completing one tutorial or doing any individual course Program It was that I worked at it for 10 hours a day for years. And uh, you can do the same thing. I I, I genuinely believe uh, for you, Brady, that if you want to have a career in computer science, um, get a master's degree in it, get a PhD in it, and buckle down, double down, work hard, uh, and you'll be rewarded for it. Uh, even like paying off student debt taking it on because this industry is so successful right now. If there was any degree worth taking student debt on for computer science, computer engineering, physics, I mean any of these STEM degrees are gonna pay off in spades. However, one more thing, I have to drop this. Uh, I was an instructor at Lambda School for almost a year. And if you don't wanna spend four years, six years, 10 years, trying to build up these schools and paying for skills and paying for them, uh, Lambda School is a really great choice, and it'll get your foot in the door. It's just the beginning. Uh, you're not there after you've finished with any training program, but it'll, it'll get you the skills that you can probably find a job and continue to grow. It's your black belt. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. It qualifies uh, as getting your foot in the door. You're, you know enough to learn now.